Yo, what's good everyone? It's Anushan and you're listening to Brown Men Won't Jump. Howdy how y'all. Welcome to another episode of Brown Men Won't Jump. I'm Asui and today joining me are AC. What is up, guys? And Eric. Yes, sir. So today's episode, we're going to talk about buyouts, beefs, and booties. <laughs> Appropriate. Awesome, man. <laughs> awesome. So let's jump right into it. As some of you may know, over the past week, a blossoming news story has come out about Kevin Durant and Michael Rappaport having some beef on Instagram. What happened was Michael Rappaport tweeted out screenshots of DMs from Kevin Durant, where Kevin Durant is just piling on all this misogynistic and homophobic commentary aimed at Michael Rappaport. And it's a really bad look for both Kevin Durant and Michael Rappaport, in my opinion. Whose side are you guys on in this beat? Is it the guy who kind of ratted out Kevin Durant to the world? Or Kevin Durant himself, who's saying some pretty nasty stuff? I think this is a, a clear case where everyone's a loser. But if I had to pick a side as to who won this beef, or at least whose side I'm on, I'm going to have to take Kevin Durant's side here, in part because I can't stand Michael Rappaport. Sadly, he's a Knicks fan, and he represents us very poorly. But basically, he's just a blowhard who has all these extreme takes, and that gets him airtime on various podcasts, various radio stations. He's often on Fox Sports. And here again, he proved that he's all bark but no bite because this guy clearly can't take any kind of criticism or any kind of uh, slander at all because he violated one of the great rules of private conversations, which is no longer making it private. And I don't buy that this was somehow a threat to his family or anything like that. So Michael Rappaport to me is a, is a loser for just revealing this whole conversation out there. Kevin Durant is a man who brings in 60 plus million dollars a year. Michael Rappaport is very well aware that none of the faux physical threats that were in those DMs, Kevin Durant was actually going to do anything. So like AC, I'm not buying it. I'm fully, fully on Durant's side, even though I think this is another example of him being thin-skinned, of course. But this was a private conversation. Imagine, Imagine you're getting into it with one of your boys. And you all are having a private vitriolic exchange via text message. And then the next day, your boy shows your text messages to your employer. That's exactly what Michael Rappaport just did. And, and, and it's just soft shit. I mean, he traffics in a sport that is predominantly black, saying some things at times that kind of straddles some type of racial line. I mean, I, I can point out him threatening LeBron, uh, violence happening to LeBron on New York subways, for instance, which had a lot of undertones that were like ridiculously racist. But he straddles these racial lines. But at the same time, he then tries to evoke homophobia and misogyny in a private conversation. And the words used were definitely crass, but again, private conversation. The way I see it is... If you had to say who wins in this situation, it's kind of like what Eric said. One guy makes about 60 mil a year. 
One guy's Kevin Durant. The other guy is some random sports guy who's a blowhard. There's a million of them on Fox Sports, so he doesn't really stick out. When he went on Skip and Shannon's show, for a guy who's wrapped up in so much controversy with this, who is trying to play the victim here, he's not presenting himself well. He seems like that kind of asshole who wears a wire and talks shit about people to get other people riled up so that he can record them saying shit. And then kind of like what you said, Eric, go into the boss and say, hey, look what this guy said. But that being said, I think it does say a little bit about Kevin Durant. Nothing that we don't already know. I mean, we all know that he's as thin-skinned as it gets. But the specific language that he used, do you guys feel like it says something about Kevin Durant? I don't. And I'll, I'll say this. And as a person who has gotten into it with a lot of people in my life, I think some of the language that was used were saying like it, it was homophobic. But I, I think more what he was trying to point out is at this stage of Michael Rappaport's career, we only have him in our consciousness off of the name recognition and the sport that these other guys play and he's not actually on the stage. And he talks down to them and routinely shits on these dudes. Though, again, I do think it's crass language. I think more than anything, he was trying to elucidate that you're you're talking shit to guys who are bringing in paychecks for you at this point. And it's, it's not kind of a reciprocal relationship. Yeah, I have a, a hard disagree there, Eric, on, on a couple of fronts. First and foremost, let's talk about the actual conduct by Michael Rappaport that led to Kevin Durant's comments. Basically, what happened was that on opening night, when TNT was interviewing Kevin Durant, he was extremely passive-aggressive and basically gave one-word answers. Rappaport made some comments indicating that he felt that Durant should just not have done the interview, then come on and then just basically blow off the interview. And that's what led to this whole string of attacks by Durant, which went over multiple days. Now, like I said before, I think Rappaport is the loser for ultimately revealing all this, which is just a clear violation of, honestly, just every kind of ethics that there is, especially media relationships with sources and, you know, and players. You just can't reveal this kind of stuff. That being said... Kevin Durant has a history of making homophobic comments even before this, right? He's kind of told the line before a few times. And I will say that these are repeated comments. And what bothers me personally about the comments is that he's using homophobic comments as a slur. In other words, he's using it to insult this person. So I look at that. The first time I saw these comments, my first thought was, wow, this is homophobic. I don't want to equivocate here. I don't think there's a borderline situation here. I think what's Important to note here was that you have a person who's in the midst of insulting someone else, threatening them, doing all kinds of things, and making homophobic comments to do that. And that's, I think, what was troubling for some of us, and, and not just those in the gay community. I think you could be, you don't have to be in the gay community to feel that these comments were offensive, in my opinion. I'm with you 100% there. It kind of reminds me of the whole situation with Myers Leonard. Now, I'm not going to be one to jump to conclusions and say that the comments made by Myers Leonard makes him a racist. But whether or not you meant it in a racial way, the use of the slur and therefore the desensitization of that slur can be extraordinarily destructive. In a similar way, what I don't want to say that Kevin Durant is a homophobe or is misogynistic, 
But using those slurs in that way and using that type of language desensitizes us to the greater problem and the casualty with which he used that is a problem in and of itself. So that's where I take issue with Kevin Durant's words there. With respect to the tone of what was said and the way that it was said and the fact that there was it was over multiple times, multiple incidents, at least four incidents on separate dates where these comments were made, it does make it seem like at the very least he's trying to use them in a derogatory fashion. I also think that there is an element of racism in Kevin Durant's comments. I mean, he doesn't hesitate to repeatedly use the word pale to describe Michael Rappaport. Or pasty. Pasty, yeah, exactly. So he's making some sort of racist comments too, you could argue. And at the very least, I, I think that the, the comments, whether he intended to be shared or not, clearly he didn't intend to be shared with everybody else. They weren't appropriate. And I'll say this, his apology was frankly pathetic because all he basically apologized for was that the comments got out in public, not for the content of them. And that itself is a problem. And I think that in itself merited him getting fined for them because it, it shows that he doesn't view the language as bad. And that's a problem. One last thing on Kevin Durant. I don't want it to be lost. We, we argue about whether or not these comments are bad. The more interesting to me personally is that he made these comments at all. In other words, that he's taking his time once again to use social media, whether it's Twitter and here it's Instagram, to vent his frustration against people who are critics of him. And, that, and not just famous people, also just random people on the internet, right? This is a guy who is the second greatest basketball player of the last decade and one of the greatest basketball players of all time. It's kind of sad that this is how he spends his spare time on burner accounts, with his own accounts, just, you know, getting into fights with people. How many times happened even just this year where he's gone to random squabbles with people on the internet? It's just sad, honestly, for a guy who's this talented. In my opinion, Kevin Durant should be in the Hall of Fame twice. He should be in the Hall of Fame for his remarkable play on the court and his remarkably thin skin off the court because it has to be an all-time great. I've never seen anybody with this level of thin skin. Yeah, he's definitely thin skin, And I also think a lot of people are like sick and tired of Michael Rappaport. So hopefully... This leads to Michael Rappaport being seen less and less in relation to basketball. I, I totally agree, Eric. That if That's the outcome of all this. And even just seeing Michael Rappaport trying to explain himself on Undisputed. It was pathetic. It just made me, yeah, it made me think that, hey, that at least that's one good outcome that came out of Kevin Durant's comments here. Amen to that. Thanks. Well, it seems the NBA finally doled out punishment for Kevin Durant with this incident and fined him $50,000. In your opinions, was this appropriate? Was it too much or too little punishment? Now, I've made it clear that I think that Kevin Durant's conduct was wrong. That being said, I think that this is the most the NBA could have done and, and probably was ultimately the appropriate penalty for the situation. And I say that for a few reasons. We have to distinguish between a person having a private conversation and somebody having a conversation or, or making a statement to the media or in front of a live mic or something like that. And I, I think that decision needs to be noted. So a fine is consistent with other homophobic remarks that have been made, say, to referees or other things like that in the past by people like Kobe Bryant and Rajan Rondo. So that seems fair to me. Anything more than that, I think, would be overstepping the bounds of what we want a commissioner to be able to do. I, I have no doubt that someone like David Sturm might have come down very hard on this. I don't think we need to go that far in, in instance like this. It could lead to a slippery slope where people start publishing comments by athletes or, you know, texts from athletes that bother them in some way or form and then they get them suspended. So I think there's an appropriate level of penalty and the NBA should rest it at that. 
Agree. Ten years ago, in 2011, when Kobe Bryant called Benny Adams a homophobic slur, he was fined $100,000. Now, he said that on the court under Stern's administration. So, I think it's perfectly fair homophobic slurs said in a private context for a $50,000 fine. I, I think anything more than, than that probably would be looked at as being some type of disproportionate outcome. For sure. I think this was the right move. And while the NBA probably can't punish him for it more, in the court of public opinion, Kevin Durant should definitely be held accountable. That being said, there is a quote that I think Kevin Durant would be a lot wiser if he followed. It's one that LeBron James lives by, and it's The Man in the Arena by Theodore Roosevelt. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena. So Kevin Durant, I know you're listening to me right now. Remember, you're the man in the arena. Don't give any credence to what the words of some random guy on Instagram or Twitter say to you. Just play your game. That's all you need to do. Well said, Oswee. Well said. So let's talk about one of my all-time favorite players, J.J. Redick. Recently, he's had beef with David Griffin, the general manager of the Pelicans, because apparently the Pelicans front office promised him that if he reported to the team, they'd eventually facilitate a trade to a team in the Northeast so he'd be closer to his son, who can't visit him in New Orleans because of COVID. And so if no trade was possible, he'd be bought out. But turns out, the Pelicans traded him to the mat. So I have to ask you guys, is this a fair complaint? Or should he just deal with it because he chose to take a big contract from New Orleans instead of signing with the team close to home? Most notably, my Sixers. He could have re-signed with us for cheaper, but he didn't. Your thoughts? So he took the contract that was offered to him. He got a lot of money. The team decided to keep him. I, I neither feel bad for J.J. Redick for wanting to and expecting them to move him to the team of his choice, nor like, nor do I feel that David Griffin necessarily did something that was untoward. They both have conflicting interests, of course. And this just goes back to, it's a business. The teams will do what's best for their interests and players should act accordingly. So JJ Reddick getting angry about a GM acting in his team's best interest. I mean, he's a professional. He's been around for 15 seasons. He knows the game. I don't really understand why he's voicing some type of displeasure, but I, I mean, just like I'm looking at this for the interest of the Pelicans, I, I think we need to also extrapolate these feelings for players when they act in their own interests. That's a really good point, Eric. I think too often, we forget that it is a business in many ways, shape or form. And we're really harsh on players when they act in their best interest, because we as fans expect them to sort of do what we want. And oftentimes that coincides with management of the team that we like. Well, if we're not going to be critical of management of the Pelicans here, we can't be critical of players when they make similar decisions. For all those reasons, I agree with you, Eric, because ultimately he could have signed a contract to be closer to the Northeast at the time, if that was something that was important to him, he could have signed directly with a contender. He chose neither option, and many people in the league were surprised when he signed this two-year deal with the Pelicans, who gave him a good amount of money to do so. 
probably a little bit more than his market worth, at least what a contender would have been able to pay him. So then he doesn't get a complaint afterward. That's just what it is. It's a business. Now, granted, of course, the COVID situation came out of nowhere and probably threw a wrench in his plans and he wants to be able to spend time with his son. Well, tough luck. It's the business you're in. And, and to, all things being considered, he got traded to the Dallas Mavericks, who could actually use him. He'll get real playing time there. Who knows? They can make a run in the West. So I don't have any sympathy for JJ, to be honest with you. What I don't understand when players like JJ complain, we have a very recent example of a GM, Masai Ujiri, in Toronto, telling a marquee player, DeMar DeRozan, that he wasn't going to trade the guy, and then turning around within a couple of weeks and trading him for Kawhi Leonard. I have no clue how you could possibly be caught blindsided at this point by any of the mechanizations of front offices. So yeah, I, I'm just, I, I don't get it. You both bring up good points. I think it's fair for him to complain. Anybody has the right to complain about where they're employed or whatever. But at the same time, it's kind of like what you guys said and what Richard Jefferson said. Former Sixer J.J. Redick, you're a great guy. The league is better for you. But look, man, unless you're some marquee player, and not marquee in the way that DeMar DeRozan was a marquee player. I mean an actual marquee player. You're not going to get what you want. And quite frankly, I'm glad that they did this so that it prevented J.J. Redick from going to the Nets because you know he was going to go to the Nets since his entire family and extended family lives in Brooklyn. So while you're my boy, JJ, I'm actually so grateful to David Griffin for saving league parity by shipping him over to Dallas. Not going to lie, I was kind of still holding out hope that he joined the Knicks who badly need a three-point shooter, but you're probably right. He was probably headed to the Nets. So God bless you, David Griffin, for preventing that from happening. Do you guys think that what JJ Ordick said will actually lead players to stay away from the Pelicans? I mean, his agency is... Aaron Mintz and the CAA, the biggest basketball agency that there is. So could this have some negative impact for a Pelicans team that is already in kind of a small market and has trouble attracting free agents? Yeah, I, I was thinking about this earlier. I definitely think it can hurt them because of his agency. And they're already, as a small market, they have to pay an upcharge to get guys to even sign with them. So yeah, that, that could potentially be kind of disastrous. Now, one good thing going for the Pelicans is David Griffin has respect around the league as being kind of a good GM. And from what I've seen previously, not many guys have questioned his integrity. So this could be just looked at as some type of one-off, but I mean, could be a little dicey. I wouldn't like this type of news coming out if I were someone rooting for the Pelicans or definitely someone involved in the front office of the Pelicans. Wait, there are Pelican fans that exist? That, that's a thing? <laughs> <laughs> someone goes to those games. No, let, me tell you, let me tell you, Eric. We had an intern at, at my office once who went to LSU. And I asked her, what's it like now that Zion is in New Orleans? And what she said was, yeah, you know, the Pelicans arena has a lot of trouble filling out seats. So they often have really cheap events for frats and sororities at LSU to just go to games and get drunk for pretty cheap. So, yeah, they're not doing too hot. So if you're asking, will this affect their prospects in the future? I mean, 
they weren't attracting people to begin with. So I guess they go from zero to minus one now. I don't know. That being said, it really depends on the development of Zion Williamson, because if he becomes some generational player, Maybe that could attract people, but it didn't work when they had Anthony Davis. So they're just digging their grave further. So now we know you hate the Great Lakes and you no. hate the Bayou. This is no, good man. to know. No. <laughs> this is this is all us, we guys. Great right. Lakes and Bayou. He has a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm just spitting the truth. All right. I'm just speaking the truth as I've been told or I've experienced. That, that's it. I have no issues with them otherwise. <laughs> So I mentioned how I'm grateful that J.J. Redick wasn't bought out. Well, there are a number of players who actually were bought out this season. As a whole, do you think buyouts are a problem for the NBA? Because I kind of feel like it's unfair how you can have talented players on shitty teams just look down the bench and say, yeah, I don't want to play with these guys anymore. They can completely put a fit and refuse to play or completely mail it in when they do play request to be bought out, and then just go to a contender because it's just the rich getting richer. What are your thoughts? So I think that the buyout market is a problem for the NBA, but not exactly in the way that it's been perceived to be by most fans. So there was a lot of hand-wringing after the Lakers and the Nets acquired a couple of well-known, you know, I guess you could say even famous basketball players in the buyout market this year, that the big market teams will somehow have an advantage in buyouts. I don't think that's true at all, actually. In fact, statistically, it's not true. The most successful team in terms of adding buyouts, in terms of number of people acquired by buyouts over the last several years, has actually been the Milwaukee Bucks. Not exactly a big market bastion. Cleveland Cavaliers got plenty of players. San Antonio Spurs have gotten plenty of buyout market guys as well over the last several years. Someone who lives here, I can tell you the Nets, the Knicks, they never got buyout people in the last decade. So it's less about big markets getting buyout players as it is contenders that are already loaded getting even a little bit better. And that to me is the bigger problem about buyouts, that it's almost a cap circumvention method where teams are capped out and have no other way to acquire players via free agency or via trade, just can hold out hope that some good, talented player, a veteran who still has something left to contribute, can actually just negotiate with whatever team they're on on an expiring deal and get themselves bought out and come to a team like the Lakers that already are pretty stacked or a team like the Nets and just make that much better. Now, it's worth noting that the number of good buyout guys is pretty limited, right? So over the years, you have famously, obviously, P.J. Brown comes to the Boston Celtics, makes a big difference there. Birdman goes to Miami Heat. Last year, Markeith Morris made a big difference to the Los Angeles Lakers. But by and large, buyout guys have not had a huge impact on the championship race. But in my opinion, even a small increase in the depth and overall talent of a contender that already has a pretty good roster is unfair, and the NBA should do something to stop this. I totally agree with what you said there. In this particular case, it just happened to be that the two biggest markets got the top buyout talent. But yeah, it's really dependent on who are the biggest contenders. And I'm not really sure how they could even mitigate this situation. The NBA has to do something, but maybe making the buyout deadline the same as the trade deadline? Would that even make a difference? I, I don't know. But the problem is getting the players union on board with this will be a little tricky because when it comes to player mobility and players' rights, it'll be hard to get them to budge if they want to go to a good team. I, I think it's also worth mentioning that there is a distinction between 
buyout guys actually give up a considerable amount of money to go somewhere and buyout guys who give up basically nothing. So LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin, who both wound up on the Nets, gave up a lot of actual money for the freedom to be able to go somewhere for the rest of the season. That's different than the Andre Drummond situation, where he basically gave up the absolute minimum he could, which the Cavs actually didn't get any benefit at all from his buyout, besides just having him off the roster, I guess. But that's the rub, AC. The Cavs are the ones who wanted him off of the roster. They wanted to to move towards their younger players, and they didn't see him in the future for them. So a month ago, they stopped playing him. So who do we blame for that? Is that the Lakers and Andre Drummond's fault, or is that the Cavs who decided that they no longer had any need for him? Eric stays uh, defending his man, Andre Drummond. (laughs) <laughs> i dispute that i'm andre drummond stand you've become that that's that's how far you've fallen <laughs> i've fallen so far because I, I i swear just as recently as a couple of months ago i was calling him an empty stats all-star and now i'm like fan club number one guy <laughs> yeah basically so let's talk about your boy andre drummond I mean, right now he's recovering from a dislodged toenail injury. Oh boy, that's pretty nasty. And painful. So Eric, what do you think about your guy coming to the Lakers now? I mean, we haven't got to see much of him because of (laughs) said dislodged big toe nail. So I I don't know. I, I still like the move. I think in spurts, his size could be a net positive, but I, I don't know why I wasn't expecting it, but I wasn't expecting him immediately to be given Mark Gasol's former starting role. So that seems to be an issue because now we have a disgruntled Mark Gasol on the Lakers. And I mean, he's publicly pining for his old starting position. So yeah, I could, I could see this being potentially a lot more trouble than I would have initially realized, but at times, Mark Gasol has looked like a shell of himself. So, yeah, don't know. The thing is, as long as Harrell is on the roster and getting bench minutes, Drummond has to either be out of the rotation altogether or he has to start. He can't play with Harrell when both of them need the ball so near the hoop, right? So it doesn't surprise me at all that he's starting. And I think when it comes down to it in the playoffs, there'll be times where maybe they'll go with either Gasol or Drummond. I can't see a situation where both play that many minutes. With respect to whether or not Drummond actually helps them, I think he definitely helps them in the short term, assuming he comes back from this disgusting toenail situation, which I don't even want to think about. It's so gross. Like, what's below a toenail? It's disgusting. But if you look in the next few weeks or so, where they don't have Davis, they don't have LeBron, they just desperately need some sort of offense. So they can use a guy who you know could score 17 points a game, albeit in extreme inefficiency like Drummond tends to do. The question is, when LeBron and AD come back, what kind of role will Drummond have? Because there's a world in which he brings certain things that Gasol doesn't. He's still a very big guy with actual shot blocking, and he has actually really good hands. He's one of the rare people who is consistently on the top of the league in both blocks and steals, which is pretty remarkable for a big man. And offensively, he could, in theory, be a very good dive man, although 
statistically he has not really done that for years. Now, is that because he didn't play with really good point guards? Well, it remains to be seen. There is a world in which he plays kind of that Dwight Howard role from last season where he's going to play defense, he's going to set good picks, he's going to roll to the rim, be a bit of a lob threat. If he does those things, then it could work out. On the other hand, there's a world in which he gets a little bit too many minutes. You know, last season, the Lakers were at their best with AD at the five. And in the playoffs, he played 60% of his minutes at the five. If that goes down even to, say, 45 50%, of his minutes there because they're trying to give minutes of the five to Drummond. That's a massive error in my part because Anthony Davis this season is a 29% three-point shooter and he's a career 31% three-point shooter. So this is not a guy that's a true stretch four. He got red hot in the bubble and he was able to do that. Where you want Anthony Davis ultimately is around the hoop as much as possible to be the most devastating role man maybe ever in NBA history because that's how good he is as a lob catcher, as a finisher. He can kind of finish in every possible way. Also, he could punish switches better when he's at the five than he's at the four. So it's actually less to do about Andre Drummond than it is about how they're going to use Anthony Davis. If Andre Drummond plays that role as a five, but only you know here and there, maybe as a nominal starter, but kind of comes in and out of series depending on if he's needed, then it could be really helpful. But if he plays huge minutes here, it could be a massive negative for them going forward. I think in the playoffs, you're going to see them playing him a lot. Drummond, I'm talking about how they played JaVale McGee, where JaVale McGee was the starter, but <laughs> JaVale McGee never actually got huge minutes. I, I can't foresee a situation in the postseason where AD isn't getting the same percentage of touches at the five that he got last year. I mean, the template is already there for them to win that way. I don't see why you would change something that has already proven to be very effective. To your point, Eric, after that first series against Portland, McGee basically played no more than just spot minutes the rest of the entire playoffs. So he was a starter the whole season, only to be relegated to the bench in the playoffs. The difference, though, between last year's team and this year's team is there are three guys now on the roster who are basically fives, because I think Montrezl Harrell is a five in the modern NBA, who all have an argument to get some minutes. Last year, you had two guys in Howard and McGee, so it was easier to bench one of them. If you're benching two or three guys, what happens to the roster? And the other complicating factor is Markeith Morris, who of late has played really well and had a great minutes last year as a stretch four or even as a stretch five. So how he fit in this whole thing? It's definitely a numbers crunch for Frank Vogel. But as my guy Marlo says in The Wire, it's one of them good problems. One of them good problems. That's true story. One of them good problems. Always love a wire reference. Yeah, great show. So then, what do you guys think about these reports from Boston Media that Danny Ainge almost got Andre Drummond? Danny Ainge has almost gotten every significant free agent slash buyout in the last decade. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) You know, guys, last weekend, somebody bought me a lottery ticket. I almost won the lottery, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Almost. He almost almost had Anthony Davis. (laughs) The timeline of the Drummond thing was so funny to me because it was fairly obvious that he was going to the Lakers basically the entire last week of the buyout period. And I'm pretty sure that they just put reports out there that he was considering other teams just to prevent any kind of tampering allegations. Because, you know, even guys like Woj and Shams were reporting that, you know, it looks really strong likelihood of him going to the Lakers. And then 
you know, in the last few days, they kind of left it a little bit more up in the air. Then all of a sudden, these Boston media guys out of nowhere, like the local Boston reporters are, are putting out reports that Drummond looks looking like to the Celtics. He's really considering the Celtics. And even after he signs with the Lakers, there's reports out there saying that, you know, he was 75% certain that he was going to be a Celtic and then kind of changed his mind at the last moment. I don't know what Danny Ainge is paying these guys, but man, he's definitely got them on their payroll. Boston reporters are historically the most sycophantic media people <laughs> that you would ever find. Like their homerism has no bounds. So I'm absolutely not surprised that these guys are in his pocket. I mean, dude, I'm a New York sports fan. <laughs> I've been dealing with Boston bullshit for as long <laughs> as I can remember. You know, Eric, you say I take issue with the Great Lakes and the Bayou. I will openly say I take issue with Boston because I'm so tired of Boston fans in general. <laughs> Mass hoes to the core. Though we have a huge group of Boston sports fans that we should definitely bring on here to laugh at when it comes to the Celtics one of these days. <laughs> Just oh, to torture be, them? That would be great. <laughs> yeah. So AC mentioned the Nets adding Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge. What do you guys think? All the headlines were, oh my God, this is the Monstars all over again. This is terribly overpowered. But realistically, before this move, Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge were looking washed up. So was that media hype justified or was it just hype? I think they will be useful for them, only in the sense that they're competent NBA players. But there is a world in which they become considerably worse because of having these two additions. And that's a case in which they play these guys ahead of Nick Claxton in particular, and even in front of guys like Bruce Brown or even Jeff Green of the Five. I think this is a team at their best. They're going to be put out lineups there that are as aggressive offensively as possible, but they still need some sort of a defensive anchor. And neither of these guys, LaMarcus Aldridge nor Blake Griffin, are that kind of defender. I, th I think Griffin's a little bit better than Aldridge at this stage of their careers, but neither of them are anchor-type players. They have a guy in-house in Nick Claxton who statistically somehow is one of the best switch defenders in the NBA. In fact, the Nets actually run more switches than just about anyone, so he's perfect for their scheme. If he's losing minutes to the likes of both of these guys, that's a mistake. On the other hand, I do think that both LaMarcus Aldridge and Boy Griffin are better at this point than DeAndre Jordan's corpse. And it's not a coincidence, by the way, that Chom's reported about a week ago that DeAndre Jordan is slowly being moved out of the lineup. And in fact, he actually has been moved out of the lineup in the last week or so. So something to watch going forward. Yeah, I'm praying to all of the basketball gods that Nick Claxton gets all of his minutes taken away by LaMarcus Aldrich and Blake Griffin. I'm I'm praying and I'm praying nightly. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see a situation where potentially they inadvertently hurt themselves with the addition of Blake and LaMarcus. There's still that little part in the back of my head that says between their top five notable players that there are 28 all NBA teams amongst them. But I do think Blake and LaMarcus aren't what they were in the past. And the Nets will probably, in the playoffs at least, be better positioned if they're giving their young athletic guys a little more run. So we can just hope for Steve Nash being incompetent and in up, and really Mike D'Antoni being incompetent and up, and 
playing the new guys more. It's almost like both narratives about these two players are wrong. So you can't look at the way they played when they were option one on their respective teams and say, oh, okay, they're totally done and they can't contribute anything. In a smaller role where, you know, the, the attention of the defense on other players and in the next case, three other players, all of who, you know, command a double team, they're going to be more effective. Like the fact that Blake Griffin never dunked in two years was just a laughable stat because obviously if he's wide open, the guy can still dunk, right? Same with Aldridge. Like right off the bat, he hit a couple threes. He had a good game. But if you're expecting them to be this all NBA caliber player they were in the past, that's ridiculous as well because they're not those players physically. And especially on the defensive end, they're declined considerably. And I don't think either of them were like particularly great defenders, even at their peaks. So they'll be useful players in the rotation. It's just a matter of will they take minutes away from a guy in Nick Claxton who's really the kind of guy they actually need because of their reputations as former stars. But isn't that the rub, AC? It seems to me at some point this can just be diminishing return. They already had proven when all three of them are on the court, which hasn't happened often as of yet, they're a historically great offense. They didn't need more guys to score. What they needed was defense, particularly interior defense. And it doesn't seem as if on that front, they actually fulfill what they needed to fulfill. And to be clear, Nick Claxton isn't, you know, the second coming to Kenby Matumbo. But what he is is a guy who can switch on to just about anyone, including really fast guards. And that fits their scheme better. But I agree with you, Eric. I mean, ultimately, how much better do you need your offense to be? Wouldn't you rather use those two spots next to the big three and probably Joe Harris? I guess Joe Harris basically has to play. He's been that good this season. So your fifth guy needs to be an all-world defender. And any minutes you're going giving to someone who was just like an offense-only player would probably be a diminishing return, as you were saying. I, I guess the argument for adding these players is, one, it gives a little bit of injury insurance, right? I mean, like, instead of if anybody goes down, you have another guy who can step into one of their roles as like a third option, let's say. That could happen because we're having a team with three guys, out of which only one of whom has proven to actually be healthy. You know, do we really trust Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to stay healthy for a playoff run? Based on what we've seen this year, I don't know if we can say that. So it gives you a little bit, you know, injury depth that way. But I agree. Ultimately, if they play too much, it's going to be diminishing returns. The way I see it is it kind of harkens back to what your concern with the Lakers was, AC, about playing Drummond too much with Anthony Davis. The difference between the Lakers situation and the Nets situation is the the Lakers are just coming off a championship. They have that set formula on how to win. So the concern there is much less because when it comes down to it, they're going to play Anthony Davis. In this case, this is still their first year. So they haven't had that level of success together yet. Not to mention Kevin Durant hasn't played in God knows how long, right? So I think that this could be a big problem for them because Drummond compared to Griffin and Aldridge is not the same kind of player. I don't know about you guys, but when I think about Blake Griffin, when I think about LaMarcus Aldridge, I think of a higher quality and higher caliber player than Andre Drummond. And on top of that, the relationships that Griffin and Aldridge have with the top stars and the fact that the top stars are very moody and they can be a bit of drama queens, it could cause some issue in the locker room if they're not getting minutes. Because it's like our co-host Nissal once said, 
Steve Nash's job isn't set in stone. And we already know that Kyrie said that the Nets don't need a coach. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Griffin and Aldridge don't get enough minutes because guys like Claxton and some of those other guys, if they're getting minutes instead of Griffin and Aldridge, that could be an issue potentially. So while the big contenders on the coast made a couple of moves, the Bucks also made two buyout additions, which have kind of gone under the radar, but I think arguably helped them. They added Austin Rivers from the Knicks, and they added Jeff Teague, who was you know played for the Celtics this season, had a pretty bad start to the season. But what it gives the Bucs is a little bit of guard depth that they badly need. They've become more talented at the top of their roster, but they've certainly sacrificed depth to get that to happen. So maybe this is a move to sort of fill in some of that depth. What do you guys think about those moves? Well, like you said, it provides them guard depth, especially since they just got rid of DJ Augustine in their trade for P.J. Tucker. So they don't have a guy to run their second unit. And while Austin Rivers is not some incredible marquee player, he can fill that role pretty well. He's a solid defender. He can handle the ball decently well, and he can even play somewhat on the wing if need be. If you really think about how the Bucks have failed over the past couple playoffs, scoring was an issue for them, and Rivers is another option that they can add to their scoring lineup. Oh, I loved it for them. Uh, they were lacking depth. Austin Rivers can, as Oswe said, run the second unit. I would say Jeff T could as well, but in the last couple of years, he's been aging in dog years, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he's a rubbing it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure if that's a tenable situation, but yeah, no, I, I, I like it. I, I think Austin Rivers, he's had a prolonged shooting slump this year of sorts uh, while he was with the Knicks. You're, you're banking that with the spacing that the Bucks can get with a guy like Giannis, that I guess he should go more like or closer rather to his career average uh, from three-point shooting. But I I don't have a problem with the move at all. Definitely, they got these guys for pennies on the dollars. Well, at least Austin Rivers for pennies on the dollars. They, I mean, I wouldn't have spent anything with Jeff Teague. Speaking of Jeff Teague, Giannis had a very interesting quote about it. He said, quote, it's just weird how in the industry that we're in, that seven, eight days ago, I was like trying to kill him when he was playing with the Boston Celtics. And now a few days later, he's our teammate. It's just weird. It's a business. I mean, none of this stuff yeah. is actually really personal. Like, I mean, guys will talk shit about each other and each other's girlfriends one second. And then, you know, they're buddy-buddy with each other next week. It yeah. happens. The media and, and the fans are the ones who make it more than just a game. Unless you're KD, in which case everybody is someone to have a beef with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, has KD ever met anyone who's a legitimate friend of his? Like, I really wonder about the guy because his personality doesn't seem like he could have any type of real strong, like, friendships. Well, supposedly Kyrie is that guy, which is Oh, another really flighty dude. It makes perfect sense, though. <laughs> Man, I really wish that Harden never came there so we could have just seen all the stories develop between the two of them as they struggle to work together to lead a team to a championship. I hey, was so could... banking on that um, at I mean, the start could, of the it, season. It could be even better, right? Like, what, what if they fail with Harden? Can you imagine 
the kind of subtweeting we'll get, the amount of fake burner cards <laughs> Katie's going to be putting up there. Oh, my God. Oh, facts. I was just talking to someone earlier today, and one of the things they noted, because they're so stacked now, at least offensively they're stacked, they're kind of becoming the prohibitive favorites to win it all. If that team doesn't win with those guys who haven't exactly responded very well historically to the media prying and poking and criticizing them, whoo, we can have us a a barn fire developing. This, this is what I'm praying for every day <laughs> as, as a Knicks fan and Nets hater. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the New York media to go after them. Oh, they're not going to do it well with that if they fail in the New York media. Oh, like, no. I still remember the media, like, shitting on Derek Jeter. I'm talking about five championship Derek Jeter. <laughs> oh, you're not winning enough. Like, are you serious? That's New York City, man. I mean, I remember Real. when I was a kid, Patrick Ewing, the guy was, our, you know, our best player, probably really, realistically, since Walt Clyde Frazier and Willis Reed back in the day. I mean, he was a step above the Bernard King types. You would think that the city would be in love with him. It was the opposite. He was kind of standoffish with the media. And the media was really hard on him. They were really hard on him. It takes a certain kind of person to want to come and play in New York. Now, granted, they're playing in Brooklyn, which gets a million times less attention than the Knicks do. But eventually, if they fail, they're going to get asked hard questions. You know, if they fail, that team with that kind of talent fails, it's not going to be just the New York media is going to kill them. The national media will get on them, too. And it's going to be tough. And I would love to see what happens. So stay tuned, guys. Bring it on. There's one last buyout addition that I do want to mention briefly, and that's the Spurs getting Gorgie Jang. To me, this is an example of how the big market narrative, of how the big markets are, are eating up all the buyout candidates is, is somewhat false because the Spurs are anything but a big market. But Gorgie Jang actually is a guy who could have helped any of the contenders arguably more than the actual people that they receive. Now, Jang is no perfect player, but he can actually play defense and legitimately hit threes as well. So he would be kind of that stretch five who, who wouldn't really hurt you on the offensive end and allow guys to penetrate the lane, but still provide you some degree of defense. And statistically, he's a better defender than Drummond or either Griffin or Aldridge. So he kind of went under the radar, but it just goes to show you that smart teams that are still in the playoff race, like the Spurs, are also getting by guys too. In the case of Gorgie Jang, another factor to it really helped. He actually knew R.C. Buford from Basketball Without Borders, and he even recently said, quote, I've known R.C. Buford since before I started speaking English. So that's another aspect, a very underrated aspect about the Spurs, which is Kawhi aside, the front office is typically pretty good with the players. And you see these guys coming there. I don't know. I think that the Spurs might be a dark horse to get into the playoffs this year. What that anecdote really reminds me of is the fact that the Spurs have been at the forefront of grabbing international talent over the last two decades. So shout out to them. That's how you develop foster relationships and then it pays off randomly for you in the future. Yeah, I mean, you talk about some of the luck they had drafting the second round, taking flyers on guys over and over again, landing on these international players who end up having amazing careers like Tony Parker, Mono Ginobili. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, guys they found overseas. So credit to their front office for doing that work. And that's how you become a great team in a small market. 
right? Because I'll tell you something, being a fan of the big market Knicks, the dangerous big markets everyone whines about, we've sucked for 20 years, man. The Spurs, they did it right. They built the organization from the ground up. They had consistency in their front office, consistency in head coaching staff. They looked abroad. They made the right moves. And they were relevant for the entire period the Knicks were irrelevant for. So it just goes to show you that it's not just about big markets versus small markets. It's about how good a franchise is run. All right. So we talked about beefs. We talked about the buyout. Now it's time to talk about booties. because (laughs) (laughs) Words I didn't anticipate us talking about on a podcast. (laughs) Well, I don't know if you guys saw, but Paul Pierce went on Instagram Live, I think it was over the weekend, where he's smoking a blunt and is just surrounded by a bunch of strippers in swimsuits and all his boys. And he's just like responding to random people talking to him on his stream. And it's the funniest thing ever have you guys seen this um we're nba nerds and a famous nba player was on instagram (laughs) basically like making it rain on a bunch of strippers and a bunch of dudes around him are just like zonked out with him (laughs) shout out to paul pierce being a man of the people redistributing his wealth (laughs) looking 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 out for Essential workers in a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, look, man, the guy's enjoying his life. You know, he has a Hall of Fame career. Now he's just having some fun, right? <laughs> I mean, this is what it's all about. Why else would you become an NBA player, right? <laughs> Unfortunately, this did have negative ramifications for him. In fact, today, on Monday, April 5th, it was announced that ESPN parted ways with Paul Pierce. What do you guys think? Personally, I mean, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, look, I get it. I, I get it. But it's not like he was doing anything harmful, right? Like, I don't know. I, I just feel like maybe a suspension or whatever. I just think that this was a dumb move by ESPN. Don't you think it was a little harsh? It's harsh, I guess. It doesn't seem to me like Paul Pierce gave a shit about his job when he posted this video. I mean, I would think that anyone who posts anything like this would assume that a private company would have the right to fire him afterward. Like, I, I don't think any of us have anything at all against marijuana. I think all of us here agree very much that it should be legalized everywhere. But currently, it's technically a federal crime. I mean, so there's that whole thing. Okay, AC, you, whole... out here, you out here snitching right now. I'm saying it is. I, I mean, it's bullshit that that would be a reason. But this, let's be real. Like, a private company has a right to take whatever action they want and when you're out there Instagram live, the funny thing was, as this was happening, it was like breaking out on NBA Twitter that this was occurring and people were just like signing on and he was just going on and on and on. It wasn't like he just posted this video. He was live. It was Instagram live. Yeah. <laughs> just, you can't even make this shit up, man. Yeah, the homie was wilding. I mean, ESPN is a subsidiary of Disney Corporation. Like, <laughs> no, that's a great point. <laughs> My it's guy. Disney. You knew you weren't going to have your job Monday morning, but this is like I was telling you all earlier. Imagine, so this happened on on Friday night. Imagine being the ESPN executive in charge of the jump. (laughs) Waking up Saturday morning on your little stream, on your phone, you're seeing Paul George with strippers clapping in the back. Paul Pierce, you mean. I said Paul George. Freudian slip. That's a Freudian slip. Paul Pierce 
with strippers clapping, and I don't mean with their hands. <laughs> and, and, and you're just like, I didn't sign up for this shit. Look, I, I, I hear what you guys are saying, and you're right, AC. It's they're a private company. It's within their right to terminate a contract for whatever reason they deem is necessary. That being said, I just find it rich that a company that hires people that have so many terrible hit pieces and really attacking the character of people and their value can now go on and fire somebody for just having a good time. That That's all I'm saying. I just think ESPN, in some ways, you further expose why you suck. And I think we're all better off as NBA fans, just to be rid of Paul Pierce's self-serving commentary. Yeah. That's really the biggest problem with Paul Pierce, right? Thanks. It's the fact that everything he says is colored by him trying to make himself seem better. Like all of his anti-LeBron takes, all of his takes about who was good and who was bad, all are built to raise his own case all time, which he doesn't need to do because, man, it's a Hall of Fame player who had a memorable career and was part of an NBA championship. So his career speaks for itself. He doesn't need to speak for it anymore. I'll be really happy to see him replaced by somebody else. Absolutely. My vote for Richard Jefferson, the rising star of yes. that network. I fucking love RJ. I've always loved him back in the day. He's the realest dude out there. Someone who's not afraid to take shots at guys around the league because he's kind of just irreverent. But also is like totally fine making fun of himself and making himself look bad because he knows where his place is in NBA history. He knows that he wasn't an all-time great. And he doesn't claim otherwise. That's the kind of guy I want out there. Guy who understands the game, isn't afraid to have some fun, doesn't take himself too seriously. And so, RJ, you got my vote. Take Paul Pierce's job, please. I mean, much, much better than Paul Pierce. But I, I will say, I think Paul Pierce hasn't been the same since Draymond Green told him, you're not going to get a farewell tour like Kobe Bryant. And ever since then, <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's just been very self-serving and it seems like he has an inferiority complex. So I dream, I blame Draymond Green for this. Well, on the point of Richard Jefferson, one thing I would love, unlike a lot of these ESPN guys, he wouldn't have any personal shots at them. He would only be in jest. For sure. You know, a little bit like what the TNT guys have done for years. You know, they'll they'll say their piece, they'll take shots at guys, but it's all in good-natured fun. So that's what I, I would like from ESPN, which for years has had really a substandard program. I mean, pretty forgettable. You basically fast-forward past halftime. When TNT guys are on halftime shows, you don't want to miss what they have to say. Whereas ESPN guys, even in NBA Finals, Terrible. You'll get someone to drink. I mean, last year's NBA Finals coverage had Sage Steele, Jalen Rose, and Paul Pierce. Three people who are like automatic mute button for me. You all aren't saying anything that I don't agree with. All right. Well, we certainly had a very lively episode today talking about buyouts, beefs, and booties. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And find us on social media at brownmenwontjump. Also, you can email us at brownmenwontjump at gmail.com. We'll catch you in the next one, guys. Take care. Deuces.